nobody recommends a road trip across the borderlands of northern Mexico these days. But British journalist Ed Vuliami spent two years exploring the rough-and-tumble border territory from Tijuana to Matamoros. He witnessed what the notorious drug cartel violence is doing to the region up close. It is a journey through the most appalling violence, arguably on Earth at the moment, against this backdrop of breathtaking beauty. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In the hour ahead, we'll hear the unvarnished truth about what's happening in the scary parts of Mexico. But Mexico is a big country with plenty of wonderful tourist destinations. So we're venturing south also to the peaceful Mundo Maya. Travel writer Josh Berman clues us in on the tourist-friendly celebrations linked to a Mayan prophecy about 2012. No doubt it's the end of a cycle, and for the Maya, the end of a cycle was a big deal. The bigger the cycle, the bigger a deal it is. We're exploring two ends of Mexico today on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Whenever we do a segment on Travel with Rick Steves about tourism in Mexico, we hear from people who live in the border states warning us about the violence there. For many Americans, the coverage they've seen on TV and what they've read in the newspaper has convinced them to stay away from Mexico, period. The death toll there certainly matches the carnage of a major war, and the violence just seems so senseless. Now, I've been to Mexico City over the holidays and found it to be much like any other big city, without any evidence of drug cartel shoot-em-ups like we hear about just over the border in places like Juarez and Nuevo Laredo. And other travelers tell us that the rest of Mexico is actually very safe and that violence against tourists is rare. So to learn more about the situation in Mexico, we've invited one of Britain's most respected investigative journalists to join us here on Travel with Rick Steves. Ed Vuliami joins us in a moment to tell us what he found on a lengthy road trip across the wild frontier of northern Mexico, the area where young people make money as hitmen for drug lords. I'll warn you, some of what he describes is graphic. It's important for you to hear what he discovered about the violence and how the scene's changing, especially if you're nervous about a trip to Mexico. However, sensitive listeners may want to rejoin us in about 12 minutes for the second segment on the topic. And later in the hour, we'll talk about the opposite end of Mexico. Because of a Mayan prophecy, 2012 has become an important year for tourism in southern Mexico, especially in the Yucatan Peninsula and the state of Chiapas. That's the area, along with parts of neighboring Belize and Guatemala, that the indigenous Mayan people call home. Josh Berman specializes in writing about the Mayan world, and he's authored a guidebook to this year's festivities and celebrations down there. He'll join us later in the hour as we look into two fascinating and very different sides of Mexico today on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll start with Ed Vuliami. Ed's well-known in his native Britain as a correspondent for The Observer and The Guardian. He's reported from places such as New York and Rome, from war zones like Bosnia and Iraq, and now from the northern borderlands of Mexico. His book about what he found there is called A Mexica. Ed, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. You traveled... 2,000 miles all along the border of the United States and Mexico from the Pacific coast to the Gulf of Mexico to explore this region that you call Amexica. Just how bad is it? Well, it's, uh, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone who wanted a relaxing holiday. I did two trips, actually one in um, 2008, which was sort of zigzagging, totaling about 5,000 miles along that 2,000-mile stretch, and then a long four-month excavation, if you like, uh, an adventure of uh, perhaps not quite the right word, during which I drove 13,000 miles loop-de-loop, zigzagging across the line uh, west to east, Tijuana to Matamoros on the Mexican side, uh, San Diego to Brownsville, Texas on the U.S. side from the ocean to the Gulf, really. And, of course, it changes. The landscape changes. The story changes. The, the war, the cartel war, as it is called in shorthand, wrongly, changes. And it is a journey through the most appalling violence, arguably, on Earth at the moment, against this backdrop of breathtaking beauty in terms of the landscape and great vivacity and effervescence in terms of the Mexican culture, the American culture, and the border culture, the Amexican culture. Because I think this is a place in and of itself. That's what fascinated me in the first place. I didn't go down there to cover a war, actually, in the first place. I wanted to write just about this border, this place where the two countries meet, where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. It's a place that belongs to both countries and neither at the same time. It is a borderland. The Spanish call it una cultura fronteriza, a frontier culture. Um, and it's a frontier culture with all the connotations of that word. The Mexicans use the term la frontera, as Americans use the word, you know, the last frontier. 
El Norte to a Mexican, the North, has always had the same, as it were, aura and charisma as the West to the United States, uh, a land of, uh, of both opportunity and of tribulation. And that sort of, well, that myth, if you like, that, that aura is not without its truth. This is a, a land of opportunity and, and tribulation, of great beauty and terrible violence, um, of the libido and sensuality and deep religion and uh, spiritual faith. It's a place of contradictions. As I read your book, I just was so impressed by the intimate experience you had. You met so many people. Did you present yourself as a journalist or just some sort of a gawky tourist who was stumbling around through these places where I wouldn't imagine very many tourists go? Well, they did, of course, but not so much now. <laughs> the answer to your question is usually as a journalist, uh, but sometimes as a gawky tourist. I had broken my foot shortly before the second long trip, which proved to be quite an advantage because if you go into some of these places like Ciudad Juarez um, and especially Tamaulipas, the uh, Mexican communities across the border from uh, the deep south of Texas, tropical Texas, if you go in there with a bit of a swagger, uh, that's dangerous. You you will cause offence. If you're sort of a, an old git hobbling around on crutches, you don't present <laughs> much of a, of a threat. And I was able to play that to my advantage, actually, and get into conversations as the sort of harmless, gawky tourist with a sort of funny accent. Do you feel like what you did was dangerous? Oh, yes, very. Uh, I'm not even sure if I could do it now. Uh, the terrible reality is that Mexico is spiralling down into an abyss, a very alarming abyss. And that is frightening and tragic for the fact that it is such a wonderful country and they are such wonderful people. But yes, it was dangerous. There were, there were moments, absolute heart in mouth. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, I've, I've worked in Bosnia-Herzegovina in, in, a, in a war, in the middle of a real war for, for three years. It's not like having shrapnel crash into a building a few blocks away from you and be terrified of that or snipers shooting at you because I've had that. But it's this constant fear of being looked at. Uh, there was a time when we went into a rehab center the morning after a massacre in Ciudad Juarez where the young addicts, the young people trying to stop being addicts, were literally wiped out. This happens from time to time. And it was, uh, pardon me, this is a travel program, but the dusty ground beneath our feet was sticky with the blood from the previous night. And we couldn't get out. We climbed in over the roof to get in, and an SUV just sort of pulled up outside with blackened windows and watched us, checked us out. I mean, heart in mouth, you, are, you freeze, you are giddy with fear when that happens because of what might then happen to you. You talk about drug rehabilitation centers being targeted. Why would these combatants in this drug war target drug addicts in a center that's just trying to get them back on their feet? Well, this is where the labyrinth begins. And this is what sort of it didn't draw me in, as I've explained. It was the area and the nature of the border that drew me in. But what kept me there was this labyrinth in which you enter by asking the question you've just asked. Why would a bunch of tragic teenagers trying to get off the appalling scourge of hard drugs in these communities in one of these sort of very ramshackle rehab centers. Don't think clinic, think a couple of sort of born-again Christians, former gangbangers themselves or addicts probably in most cases, running a sort of laudable sort of Bible-bashing attempt to get these kids off drugs. Why would they want to go in and wipe them out? It's like a supermarket chain wiping out potential customers. And that's where I started to have to ask questions, the answers to which this shorthand of, you know, a cartel drug war uh, for the corridors of smuggling drugs into the United States. Just don't explain what's going on. This is in Ciudad Juarez, which is, I think, the city with the highest, still with the highest homicide rate in the world per capita. It was then in 2009-10. And it has imploded. Don't think cartel, drug lord, and foot soldiers. Uh, think outsourcing. Think 500 street and colonia gangs fighting for the right to tender to work for the cartels. Um, the narrative of, they're called the magiladores. They are assembly plants, a great necklace of them all along the border, hundreds of them, thousands of them, which uh, make products, assemble products for duty-free export to the United States. It's like having the third world sort of in your back garden without the transport costs. The maquilladoras you're talking about? Maquilladoras, they're called, yes. Yeah, these little sweatshops all just south of the border right. where, where American yes. companies can have cheaper labor without the standards for workers south of the border. Yes, and they're bonded. There's no duty payable right. uh, to export them to the United States. So now, this is different than your standard wars. It's got the, the death toll of a war, 40,000 dead or something like that. But in your book, you talk about post-ideological, post-moral, post-political. What do you mean by that? Well, this is what's really frightening about it. I think that we have, if we could just 
be pointy-headed about it for a moment, <laughs> beg, your, beg your leave. I mean, the 20th century was characterised by wars of ideology, towards the end, wars of religion, which are still being fought to a degree. Um, people with a cause, a side. What's terrifying about the violence in Mexico is there isn't really a cause. There is the veneer of a cause of smuggling drugs. But let's get back to the assassination of the kids in the rehab centre. What's that all about? It's almost violence for violence's sake. Um, I, I met a young man in a very frightening place called Reynosa, which is run by Los Zetas. I think probably the most dangerous criminal organization in the world now. They're a sort of paramilitary uh, militia cartel. And he said, this boy said to me, you know, there is an element of this of simply, you know, I can't have that T-shirt that cost me 300 bucks. I must have a different T-shirt. I have to be seen to kill to get the money to buy that T-shirt, which will then get me that SUV, not that SUV. And I thought, well, it can't be that banal. He said, don't underestimate this sort of this ersatz, brand-obsessed, posturing violence, violence for its own sake. Um, there isn't really a cause. And that's how I started to think of it as something that, you know, in a world that is obsessed by consumerism, obsessed by materialism, valueless in so many ways, I thought this war is very much of this time. It, it does not have an ideological ingredient. Nobody is killing anyone else for a cause. And in that sense, it's post-political, it's post-ideological. We are used to warfare in which people kill each other for a cause, however crazy that cause may be. Mm -hmm. This isn't one of those. It's new, it's different. It, it is of our time in that very post-modern, uh, fragmented, aimless way. Talk just a little bit about the cartel culture. What we're seeing in Mexico is very much a new style of narco. And style is not a word that one should use lightly in, in our society now. It defines an awful lot of what we do and the way people think. We like to imagine, I suppose, the, the Don, the Baron, the, the equivalent of Marlon Brando in, in The Godfather. And in Mexico, that's how they were in the 80s. Uh, he was called uh, Felix Gallardo, the great Don. And the days in which the Don wore a two-piece suit and a, and a sombrero and would give uh, flowers on Mother's Day and light the village and parties for children at Christmas time, that kind of thing. That's gone. Well, it hasn't gone entirely, but it's changed. The new generation of narco is much more likely to have an appointment with his martial arts trainer than a politician. He will uh, be more interested in the symbolism of his tattoos than in the cut of a suit. There's a buzz cut, not a fedora. And these are working class, tough. They come up through uh, the police often. They come up through the gangs often. They are not the old gentiluomo. I don't myself much like the romanticization of the classical narco-criminal days, but they are gone. So there's no Robin Hood dimension to this. Exactly, and the reasons for this are economic. The classic narco-cartel operated like a monopoly, if you like, like a corporation with a pyramidal structure. The new-look narco is very much outsourced. The new-look narco is a free-market narco. The new-look narco is a far more sort of... A, opportunistic. Um, it's all much more fluid, smash and grab. There are no rules anymore. Ed Vuliami's book about the drug war along the northern Mexican border is called A Mexica. We're at 877-333-7425 and we'll continue with Ed and your calls in a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. We're continuing to explore the problems of violence from drug cartels in Mexico right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Actually, the affected area follows the long border with the U.S., where trigger-happy drug thugs have created a warlike atmosphere. Then, we'll head south, away from the drug cartel zone, to explore tourism in the Mayan world of Mexico and its neighbors. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ed Vuliami, and his new book is A Mexica, War Along the Borderline. A Mexica being the strip of land where the United States and Mexico come together, 2,100 miles long. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Zach is on the line calling us from Puerto Vallarta in Mexico. Zach, thanks for your call. Sure. Thanks for having me on the line, Rick. Yeah, you've been listening to Ed talk. What's your take on the violence and the um, the reality in Mexico these days? Well, as you were discussing, it's, it's a very complex situation, and there, there's many different ways to look at it. I'm in Puerto Vallarta, and, and I own and operate a travel company, and we have offices in Mexico City, Cancun, and I spend a good deal of my time traveling all over the country. And I think the disconnect and, and the, the sad part about this all is, while violence and incidents of violence have certainly increased in the last few years with the current campaign, the war on drugs, or whatever you might like to call it, it really, in our opinion, the personal safety and security situation for travelers hasn't changed much in what it's been for the last 20 years. So while there are these very scary situations and circumstances along the border areas and some of the hot spots, they really don't affect the large majority of destinations that, that travelers go to, including the beach resorts, the, even the interior of Mexico. So unless you're involved intimately in the drug trade or, or human trade or, or arms trade, you really have no more risk from where we're sitting than you did five years ago, 10 years ago, or, or 15 years ago. Zach, I was just in Mexico City for New Year's Eve, and I felt uh-huh. quite comfortable in Mexico City. It was very interesting for me to feel the pulse of what is the reality for tourists, and it occurs to me anybody that wants to have a negative impact on a country like Mexico could just simply target the tourism, and, and they would devastate it. But these uh, narco-terrorists or whatever combatants have yet to do that exactly. Ed, what is your thought on that? Well, first of all, I'm extremely glad that Zach has made this point, because people listen to this program, if you've got a holiday book to Mexico, go, please enjoy it. It's a wonderful place. And what Zach says is absolutely right. There have been problems in Cancun and other resorts, Acapulco, but they have not been, as you say, targeting the tourist areas. Quite the opposite, actually. This money is being laundered and tourism is a place where you can launder it. Uh, they don't want to upset that trade. The trade that has been hit, and I'll be blunt about this, is the sort of naughty nighttime border tourism for which Juarez, Tijuana and Nuevo Laredo were, were famous. And um, if one can be sort of heretical for a moment, there are, there are several Mexicans who are quite relieved that they don't have uh, <laughs> the, uh, as it were, a certain kind of tourist looking for a certain kind of commodity, including alcohol and uh, less legal things. Um, that's gone, mostly. So until now, people have zipped over the border for those kind of uh, quickie kind of thrills. But now that's being hurt. But Zach, from your point of view, mainstream that's tourism in Puerto Vallarta... And, and what Zach is involved in uh, has not been affected and should not be affected. God forbid that I write a book that damages Mexico in that way. Zach, how is tourism for you in your business in Puerto Vallarta in light of this, quote, war on uh, drugs in Mexico? Well, well, Rick, we actually operate services throughout the entire country. So we, we've got a pretty good perspective on how tourism has been impacted, not only in Puerto Vallarta, but really our core business actually is more cultural, wildlife, uh, active and adventure travel throughout the interior of Mexico. And of course, we are active on the coastal destinations. What we've seen, and, and this is the really sad part, is there's been a general sensationalism and there's been a general irresponsibility in the reporting of a lot of the violence uh, on a day-to-day basis. Just one example, I, I remember there was a big headline story, 30 tourists dead in Acapulco. You know, that was headline, of course. The following day, it turns out the tourists happened to be national tourists, Mexican tourists, which are no less valuable than any other tourists. In fact, for us, they're more valuable these days. And that got, you know, maybe fourth page recognition. And then a couple of days later, it turns out that they were all from Michoacan and part of one of the notorious drug cartels. And that, of course, gets, you know, back page retraction. Hmm. So the damage is done. And that then plays onto the ears of what is largely a very ignorant, you know, populace in, in terms of knowledge of geography and knowing that, you know, something that happens in Ciudad Juarez has nothing to do with even someone's trip to a place as close as the Copper Canyon. You know, it's as if Hmm. something happened in Spanish Harlem, but everyone decided they can't go to New York City or New York State or the whole of the United States, for that matter. So, you know, that's what we're seeing. I was just with a group of tour operators, travel agents, and press in the Copper Canyon, which is in the state of Chihuahua, the same state that shares Ciudad Juarez. 
And over and over, they reiterated how they were just so delighted with the trip, and more than anything, how unexpectedly they felt so safe, so welcomed, that the people were so warm. And, and these are all people who explicitly voiced their concerns about the viability of operating travel in the north of Mexico, about how they would explain it to their potential clients, about how they would write about it, and they were all blown away. Now, these reporters were actually there to write positive things, and they, they were concerned that, that, that they might not be able to, or they were there to write whatever the story was. But the, the most interesting thing is what we've seen in overall trends, we don't only work with the U.S. and Canadian market. We work with Europeans, Russians, Brazilians, South Americans, and, and Mexico's domestic market. And we've seen a decided decrease in visitation from North America, and I think that that's where the ears and the sensibilities are most sensitive to this kind of sensational violence and the 24-7 blaring news and, and red lights flashing. But interestingly enough, the drop in tourism from North America has been filled in for a large part with travelers from other destinations. So in other words, um, Europe still remains strong. Russia and Brazil, whose economies are booming, are taking great advantage of all of the fire sales that are going on in Mexico. And when I say fire sale, I mean the drop in prices that were a direct result of the decrease in the, the main and most important market, which is North America for Mexico. So overall, despite what statistics say, I think there is an overall drop in tourism due to this news being constantly flashed all over the front pages. But we are seeing a recovery not from the North American markets, from other worldwide markets, including especially noteworthy Europe, Russia, Australia, South America, and Mexico's domestic markets. Okay, Zach, we've got to run, but thanks for your call. Yeah, no, thank you. Okay, bye now. And Dana's on the line in Thousand Oaks, California. Thanks, Rick. Just listening to what you said in the last conversation, um, do you think it's any kind of a disservice to Mexico to kind of say, well, travel is okay for people, that it's kind of looking at things through rose-colored glasses and it might do more harm than good by not changing the, the situation in Mexico? Because I don't think it's that overblown. I mean, there's so many cases, the murder rate is horrendous, and um, if people just think it's okay to travel there, maybe it will help continue the situation there by people not thinking there's really a problem in that country. How would the United States change that? Well, it's obvious that North American tourists have dropped down the amount of people that travel to Mexico, maybe in a sense of like a boycott, because if it hurts other parts of the economy in the country, maybe there'll be more done about what's going on and less tolerance of the violence. If people travel there from around the world, and if they're in in certain towns and areas that are kind of, since it's a tourist area, maybe they're not being touched by the violence. It kind of downplays the fact that the violence is happening. I live in Southern California. I used to go to Mexico, different parts have flown there, but we used to be able to drive into uh, Tijuana and Ensenada. I would never do that now. I wouldn't even think about it. And I had thought about, even years ago when we went there, I knew that, you know, I was kind of using up a lot of luck because nothing luckily ever happened to us. But even, you know, even 30, 40 years ago when I was a lot younger, it still wasn't that safe of a place to drive through. You know what I mean? Ed, what are your thoughts on that? Well, several. These are two interesting positions from our callers. I mean, firstly, the issue of the sort of, you know, the 24-7 blanket coverage. Yes, there is more than there was. But given the scale of what's happening and the severity of what's happening, I don't think it's overblown, given that the cities we're talking about along the border are 10 minutes walk from the United States over the bridges. And so I, I think that, you know, it would be irresponsible actually not to report what's happening also, quite apart from the fundamental issues I was trying to raise earlier about what is this violence and what does it say about about society beyond Mexico. I don't think this drug war is just something that, that is as instructive about Mexico. I think it tells us a lot more about you know where we've got with a world that seems to be determined to get as high as possible. But on the point about tourism... And I think I'm very grateful for our friend from California for raising this. I think if you, if you have booked a package tour to Cancun through Zach, yes, of course, go. You'll have a marvelous time and nothing will go wrong. But a friend of mine from Britain was planning on doing a cycle tour across the Baja into Sonora, uh, Hermosillo, that sort of a desert ride. And he said, but it is safe, Ed, isn't it? And I had to say, well, actually, you know, Andy, it's not. Uh, 
I wouldn't want to recommend that our caller from California, you know, go on a kind of 20th anniversary cycle or motorcycle tour of his favorite roads in Ensenada. Well, actually, Baja, you probably are going to be okay. But but once you get into Sonora, once you get into some of those other parts of Chihuahua that aren't Copper Canyon, it is dangerous. And if one is going to do it, uh, and one can do it, then, you know, there are rules. Make sure that you're back at your hotel after dark and things like that. Be Be careful. Having said that, something very interesting is happening in Ciudad Juarez, and it's this. I went back there just to work on a foreword to the paperback edition of this book and on the afterword, which is about the money laundering. And people were out in the streets again in Juarez, having operated more or less a sort of self-imposed curfew for several years after dark, families out for meals and things. And we went out for dinner, my friends and I. And um, I said, what are we doing? I thought this was absolutely out of the question. These days. There's a kind of exhaustion. People are fed up with being afraid. And there's a sort of defiant, devil-may-care, come on, let's take the kids out for a burrito and quesadilla. Um, that's happening. It's quite interesting. It's, it's almost heartening. And if there is any light at the end of this tunnel, and there has to be because all these things come to an end, that's what it will be, I think. It's also very interesting to look at where the opposition is coming from, who's facing down the narcos. It is the authorities in one way, but it's the churches, it's uh, the women's groups, it's the clergy, it's organized labor, such as it's allowed to exist in the Machiladores. You know, there are some incredibly brave people working with the addicts, working against the violence. And um, one doesn't want to let the sort of the horror of what's going on overshadow the courage. I've always, as a war correspondent, I've always operated on the basis that the courage of the decent people is always more interesting than what uh, the historian Hannah Arendt called the banality of evil. I think that what, what interested me some people, you know, uh, for some reasons known to themselves, do want to read what these people are doing to each other. This appalling violence, this almost sort of grotesque, uh, inventively perverse violence. But, you know, what makes me an addict to places like this are the good people and the courage of the good people. It's interesting that in what I've called a post-political war, the opposition's coming from a sort of non-political or pre-political clergy for the most part. There are some extraordinary brave priests and pastors facing down the narcos in a way that no politician dares to do. It's a male war, a macho war in many ways, and women are to the fore in trying to face down this awful violence, both in the workplace, in the home, and in the community. Organized labor is uh, not exactly <laughs> buoyant in the Machiladoras. It's uh, illegal in most of them. But such as there is, they are playing their part. They're usually women's groups as well, the trade unions. And they are trying to organize peace marches and so on against the narco violence. So, you know, there is opposition. Mexico is a vibrant and a tough society in that respect. Dana, thanks for your call. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Ed Vuliami, and Ed's new book is A Mexica, War Along the Borderline. Ed, we've established that this whole swath of Mexico is in a basically a civil war with 40,000 dead. How much of this relates to marijuana and the illegality of marijuana? Not much. It is the zeitgeist, this debate. I think that the legality or otherwise of, of marijuana will operate on its own level. There is a, a discourse within the United States. In Mexico, possession of a limited quantity of any drug, class A, B or C, is legal. It doesn't seem to make much difference. In fact, what we haven't talked about, actually, is the tragedy of the way in which these societies on the border are awash with hard drugs, crystal meth, methamphetamine, crack, heroin, and possession of an amount for personal consumption is legal in Mexico. And it's pathetic, actually, to see the addicts kind of weighing up what they've got, uh, consuming it, and then going out and getting another lot, knowing that they can't get arrested. Um, I don't think the debate over the legalization of marijuana as such is really relevant to what's happening in Mexico. The debate about whether or not hard drugs should be legalized is relevant, I think. And if hard drugs were legalized, then certainly the sands would shift and the violence would not stop, I don't think, but it would certainly change the people who are now manufacturing the hard chemical and synthetic drugs illegally would presumably carry on manufacturing them, but legally. And people would, if they could go out and buy drugs at the supermarket legally, would do so. 
then we get into another conversation. But I don't think the legalization of marijuana issue is as pertinent to this situation in Mexico um, as people think it is. And it certainly diverts from what I think are the also importantly underlying economic aspects. Now, it seems like if Mexico wanted to throw them a curve, they would simply curtail their ability to use the banks. How on earth can they store these billions of dollars of profit that they're dealing with? Well, when people ask, you know, what can we do? Of course, there's a huge long list of answers about schooling and military strategy. But the one thing that we can do is go after the money. This business is worth hundreds of billions of dollars a year. And you can't drive around Mexico with hundreds of billions of dollars in cash in a truck. Uh, you have to bank it. There has been one case that gives us a glimpse of what's going on. It was uh, a settlement in a district court in Miami in March 2009. And it was a deferred prosecution which sort of bound over, as it were, the Wachovia Bank, which is now, by the way, in the clear. The deferred prosecution expired, uh, gone. Wells Fargo have taken over that bank and cooperated fully with the investigation. But what they found was that 110 million had been, as it were, transferred into the bank directly from a drug deal, but that the staggering sum of 378 billion, 378 billion dollars had been insufficiently accounted for. Now, that's not to say it was drug money, but it could have been. It came from Mexico through what are called casas de cambio, exchange houses. Now, this is a staggering amount of money for one bank over a period of some four or five years. And it has, as I say, we must say this, it has been sorted now. Wachovia is in the clear, very much so. But it sort of gives us a glimpse into the scale of the operation and what can be done. I am of the opinion that the actions that governments have taken against the laundering of terrorist money have been pretty effective, so far as I can infer. And yet there does not seem to be the same kind of will to go with urgency against the drug money. There is a man who until recently was the head of the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime in Vienna, a man by the name of Antonio Maria Costa, who posits that the amounts involved are so enormous that the governments can't really afford to go after them because, um, well, I suppose he's suggesting that uh, this kind of money is one of the pillars that props up the banks such as they are propped up. Ed, you mentioned things are even getting more dangerous now than when you were there. Do you feel the very act of publishing this book has put you into any danger? I hope and think not. I'm not a player in any of this. The journalists have been attacked, but these are journalists who are affiliated to cartels or journalists who are actually exposing the specific actions of specific people in specific places where they live. I would like to think that I'm not in danger, although I wouldn't sort of go hanging around no. uh, Matamoros for a long weekend. Well, this has been a courageous piece of journalism, and thank you very much for your work. Thank you very much indeed for having me. A more inviting part of Mexico is next on Travel with Rick Steves. Far away from the wild and dusty frontier, let's head south now to the humid and tropical reaches of Mexico where the Mayan people are eager to welcome visitors who want to learn about their world. And Willie Weir recalls an early travel lesson he picked up, regardless of a language barrier, on a bicycle stop at a ramshackle taqueria in Baja, California. Gracias for coming along. It's Travel Through Mexico Today with Rick Steves. You can expect to hear a lot in the coming months about an ancient Mayan prophecy based on their calendar for the winter solstice later this year. Travel expert Josh Berman joins us to tell us what it's really about and how the Mayan region in southern Mexico and neighboring countries is in full gear to welcome visitors. Josh, thanks for being with us. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. And so what's the big deal, 2012, in the Mayan world? So it is a big deal. That's, that's the number one thing. The date, December 21st, 2012, was something that some Maya artist or scribe inscribed into a stone tablet about 1,300 years ago at a site near Tabasco, Mexico. So the date itself is an actual artifact. It's only been written once. There's only one reference to it, which definitely adds to some of the mystery and misinformation about it. But no doubt it's the end of a cycle, and for the Maya, the end of a cycle was a big deal. The bigger the cycle, the bigger a deal it is. The end of the long count, which is a 5,125-year span of time, is a big deal. And this is definitely an important one. So that date, that actual date of the winter solstice, December 21st, 2012, this year is, is when that cycle of 13 baktuns, this exact count of time, is going to end. Wow. So we'll talk about some of these festivals in a moment, but let's first lay the groundwork. What is Mundo Maya? How many people are we talking, and what's going on with that civilization now? 
kind of refers to two things when we talk about Mundo Maya. One is geography, and that includes the entire countries of Guatemala and Belize, the area around Copan in Honduras, some sites in El Salvador, and then numerous southern states in Mexico, including the entire Yucatan Peninsula and the state of Chiapas. So that's the geographical region. That's where the Maya flourished about 1,500 years ago, the civilization that rose and fell around the same time as Rome. And it's an amazing, really unique travel destination today. Now, the other thing we, we are referring to when we say Mundo Maya or when we just say the Maya are the living Maya, the people. There are as many as 10 million living Maya today, people of Maya descent, that live in that same region and that live abroad and that have traveled around. Just there. They've experienced globalization as much as any of us. Um, and they speak in some of their ancestral villages in the Mundo Maya 30 distinct languages Mayan languages that are still alive today. That number is going to go down. There's a few of them where there's only a handful of speakers left, but that's definitely one of the main features of the Maya that have survived. There have been massacres in the past, genocides against indigenous people, where indigenous clothing and costumes were forbidden and indigenous people were forced to lower their heads when they passed a white person. Are those days past? Uh, mostly, yeah. I think, uh, I mean, up until pretty recently, yeah, there were some horrible things that happened. The Maya as a people have survived kind of three massive near extinctions. And one was the mysterious collapse in 900 AD when they abandoned their cities. And there's a number of theories surrounding that. And then the second was when the Spanish came and, and wiped out as much as 90% of their population. And they, they still survived and then went centuries, yes, of being complete second-class citizens as the countries of Central America formed around them. And then, yeah, they had this genocide, attempted genocide in Guatemala that, that lasted up until only a couple of decades ago. But when that finished and when Rigoberto Menchu, a Guatemalan Maya, won the Nobel Peace Prize and that really kind of brought the Maya into the forefront and into the conversation about social justice and rights. So talk more about how these communities are maintaining their traditional culture, speaking their language, raising their kids with Mayan traditions. You'll find these different Maya communities throughout the Mundo Maya. There are different Maya that speak Yucatec Maya all throughout the Yucatan Peninsula, and then other really isolated villages, especially in the highlands of Guatemala and the hills in Chiapas, where you'll find, you'll find entire villages. Yes, they're wearing their native clothing. They're speaking their native language. They're combining their native spirituality with the Catholicism that, that came in a few hundred years ago and making it totally their own. So these are places, you know, when you visit the Mundo Maya, it's always a combination of going to archaeological sites, seeing the ancient, and mm -hmm. then seeing the modern, and how the modern has integrated, you know, the ancient. I was going to ask you about how the religion has been kind of rolled into the Roman Catholicism. In so many cultures, the imperial church that comes in will be easier to embrace by the indigenous people because they let practices that were their first become sort of incorporated and morphed into the new religion. Has that happened with the Mayan version of Catholicism today? Absolutely, Rick. It's, it's fascinating to witness some of these ceremonies. I was in a church in Rabinal, Guatemala, a couple of years ago with a group of students, and it was the 25th anniversary of a massacre that had happened in that town where a number of people were killed a number of Maya were killed, and this was a, a ceremony in the church to bring their spirits back, and the idea was their spirits were going to be joining the celebrants there. And it, it was kind of a light feeling. There were people outside cooking tamales, and it was this really just nice communal feel, but unlike anything I had seen before as far as the official rites that were that were going on in the church. It's fascinating to think that somebody could go to a some sort of a Mayan temple a thousand years ago, and then stumble into a Catholic mass today and find similarities. It's pretty wild. I went to a, uh, a market on the Riviera Maya last spring, and it was a reenactment of what an ancient Maya market might have looked like 1,200 years ago. This was at Ishkare, kind of a theme park that, that does a lot of cultural reenactments. And this was one of them where they had hundreds of actors speaking Yucatec Maya and selling the goods that they would have sold in those days. And it was, it was done pretty well. It was really wild walking through that and being offered the copal and the quetzal feathers and the jade and hmm. uh, a lot of the same things that they did trade back in the day. Did it seem like a tacky touristy thing, or did it seem pretty respectful? You know, I was expecting it to seem pretty tacky. I had heard a lot of mixed reviews about this place. 
I thought it was done pretty well. And that's the feeling I got when I was there in this last year. Is just it's it's not just you know some sort of a Disney kind of experience for tourists, but there's a pride with indigenous peoples that's really living itself out and not on stage for tourists, but tourists are welcome to go check it out. You talked about in the highlands of Guatemala, there are actually remote communities where they're uh, living their culture sort of autonomously. Are these areas that tourists are welcome to go, and are there dangerous areas that people should be careful not to stumble into? The only dangerous areas I know about are in the big cities, in the, in the main capital cities of Central America. Most of the Maya really do still live in the countryside and are still growing corn uh-huh. and, and just getting by day to day. And you know, this whole business with 2012, it's not really something that most modern Maya grew up with this knowledge. This is knowledge that Western archaeologists and some local archaeologists too have been teasing out of the inscriptions and the ancient mm-hmm. monuments. So they're bringing this back and then that's been also part of this renewed cultural pride. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Joshua Berman, and his book is Maya 2012. It's published by Moon Publications. And Josh, how did you come to this idea to publish a guidebook just for this special year for Mundo Maya, 10 million Mayan people scattered through uh, this part of Latin America? So I was updating my Moon Belize book last year. I was working on the ninth edition of the book, and I was traveling up the McCall River, which is one of my favorite places in Belize and in all of Central America. It's a beautiful stretch of a river with really fantastic jungle lodges, really small, beautiful jungle lodges off the grid along this river. How do you spell that river, Valley? The McCall River, M-A-C-A-L. Okay. That's in the Cayo district of Belize, the highlands of Belize. So I was working my way up the river by car, by canoe, uh, by any way that I could get up there to visit each lodge. And I ended up at a Christmas caroling party at the Lodge at Cha Creek, which is one of the preeminent jungle lodges in all of Central America. It began as kind of these huts, uh, these kind of hippie huts, and, and it's now one of the most luxurious, mm-hmm. upscale, really thoughtful, well-done lodges there. And I started asking the, the owners what are you planning for 2012? And they told me this incredible plan. They're going to convert the resort into a ancient Maya village, and, and there will be astronomers and astrologers and archaeologists on hand, and they'll be doing their own ceremonies. And it just got me thinking, I wonder what other people are planning. So I started calling around and realized that there was indeed enough people planning ahead to do these special packages, tour trips, and celebrations of Maya culture all throughout the year. It wasn't just going to happen on December 21st when the the count ends. There's a lot of preparation that goes to get ready for this cycle ending. So one Maya priest I spoke with is he's organizing a number of cleansing ceremonies that he's doing in northern Guatemala to help prepare all of humanity to enter this next age of the sun, as, as he called it. So that's basically what this long count is counting down. We're entering, according to the Mayan uh, religion, we're entering a new era, a new age? It depends. It depends who you speak with. If you talk to some of the hardcore academics, Maya studies scholars who have been studying this stuff for decades, there really is no direct evidence that the Maya predicted anything would happen or that we would enter a new age. That, that part of it is, is something that there are different beliefs on. And that was the fascinating thing for me was I would find people, you know, researching this book, I spoke with people who really believed that we're entering a new age for humanity. This is our chance to for humanity to pull together, join ancient and modern wisdoms, and, and we will enter this transcendental era. You know, then there's the people who, who are talking apocalypse, who which comes out of nowhere. There's really no evidence for that. And then there's the academics and everyone else in between. Or there's there's the tourists just looking for an excuse to party and go down to Maya country. Exactly, and that's where I kind of felt like I could come in. And I think all these people, all the, everything that they had in common was travel, and they all had respect for Maya culture, and they all love to travel, and they love to get in there and get their hands dirty. Then they're offering all kinds of immersive opportunities to get in there and really interact with people. And when we talk about it, especially, Rick, when we're talking about like some of those cultural events, when they do put people on stage... I think the main thing to, to really ask about that, if you want to know if it's tacky or if it's authentic, that's going to be the big question that people have. I think the main question to ask is, were there Maya people involved in planning this? And you know, were they really consulted in this? And I think the answer to that question will really help. So where would you go, Josh? Because, I mean, you're, you're an aficionado of this. You love this region. You got one mm-hmm. shot at this every 5,125 years. <laughs> where are you going yep. to be on December 21st? 
I don't know yet. Uh, Guatemala? I lean toward Western Belize because I have so many friends there and I know that some amazing things happening there, but it was, sure would be great to be somewhere <laughs> I've never been. Just got one shot at it, man, December 21st. Oh, although you said That's all right. year long there'll be festivals. I'm talking with Josh Berman, and Josh writes the moon guides to several different countries in Central America, but the book we're talking about is Maya 2012, talking about this very important date in the Mayan uh, civilization. Josh, give us a quick primer. What are the top three or four Mayan sites that somebody would see on any year when they're going south to Mundo Maya? When we're talking about archaeological sites, there are literally thousands of them throughout the region. And then there's you know hundreds that are really well-developed uh, and accessible to tourists. And the amazing thing about them that just continues to really be remarkable to me is how unique and different each one is. Uh, for example, everyone's heard of Chichen Itza. It's the easiest to access. It gets the most visitors. It, it really is a big, grand site that's worthy of all the attention. And this was sort of the capital of the Mayan Yucatan from the year 900 AD. Yeah, this was more of a post-classic site, right. you know, after the other huge okay. uh, cities collapsed. Would there be a less touristed alternative to that? Because, I mean, I think that's sort of a slam dunk. Everybody goes to Chichen Itza. Exactly. And that's what I'll be looking for. I, there will be big gatherings and crowds at some of these main sites. Just in, in general, if you're going down there anytime, where would you go to get the Chichen Itza magic without the tourist crowds and the commercialism? There's a number of sites in Belize that are kind of off the radar. You know, no, nobody's ever heard of Shinantanich, which is one of my favorite sites. You have to put your car on a ferry to get across the Mopan River in western Belize to get yeah. there. Uh, Caracol is really remote in Belize. And then you've got... Tikal, of course, is one of the granddaddies, which really does live up to its hype. And it's so yeah. big and expansive uh, that it really absorbs a large number hmm. of tourists without you really realizing it. Tikal and, and Chichen Itza would be great and, and well-organized for visitors, I would think. But there's a roughness and a sort of an unpolishedness to me about Belize. One of the most striking views I've ever had was standing on top of a Mayan monument, uh, some kind of a pyramid that happened to be excavated in Belize. Looking out over the plush, rich jungle and seeing bumps on the horizon all around me and having my guide say those are all more Mayan sites that have yet to be excavated. There's nothing like being on, on top of a pyramid that pierces the jungle canopy yeah. and seeing that ocean of green around you that really gives you the scope of what was there, especially if you imagine back and realize that at the height of the Maya culture, there were no trees. And that, that might be part of the reason of the collapse, but it was all civilization. And now... In Belize, the highest man-made structures in the country are still Maya pyramids. Copan, yeah. I would say, is another big, beautiful site that isn't visited quite as much. If you're going to Copan in Honduras, in western Honduras, you definitely have to make an, you know, the effort and commitment to get there. But it's a really unique site. It was known as the Athens of the Maya world mm. because of the quality of the sandstone there. The scribes were able to do some of the finest mm. calligraphy and writing in, in all of the Maya world. And they've got some big festivals planned. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Josh Berman. And Josh's book celebrates this uh, special year in the Mayan calendar. It's the Moon Guide called Maya 2012. Josh, there's a lot of ways to celebrate and get into Mayan culture. What about cuisine? Finish it off with, with just a, an appropriate meal while you're traveling in Mundo Maya. Oh, well, it's all going to start with corn and end with corn, Rick. The Maya are the people of corn, this incarnation the gods created people out of corn, and, and that's what their growing seasons are, are run by, and that's why they developed the calendars in the first place, to help them chart the growing seasons. So when you're down there, you definitely want to get those hot corn tortillas. You'll hear this, that sound. If you hear that, that means somebody's making a tortilla, wow. and they're going to put it on the comal and get it nice and toasty for you. Um, another big thing you'll see, especially in the Yucatan, is is food that's wrapped in banana leaves and, and then steamed and boiled that way. So you'll just be presented with this mess of leaves that you get to unwrap like a package ah, and steamy. and see what's inside. Yeah, it's it's really definitely one of the best parts about going down there. All right. And that's everything from the street food to, you know, Francis Ford Coppola's resorts. Josh Berman, author of Maya 2012. Make me a corn tortilla. I'm going to close my eyes and go to Mundo Maya right now. <laughs> Sounds good. Que rico. Mmm, delicioso. I'm there. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Rick.
Early in Willie Weir's career as a bicycle adventurer, a trip to Mexico's Baja California helped him to see beyond any language barriers in meeting the people of another country. It's 1991, and I'm on my first bike trip in a non-English-speaking country. I don't speak the language. I've been warned not to drink the water, not to eat the food. I'm traveling alone, and I'm nervous, and I'm lonely, and I'm hungry. I lock my bike. There isn't anyone to steal it within 50 miles and walk inside this restaurant and timidly order some tacos and a Coke. The kids at the next table have a guitar and an accordion. They smile and laugh and when I attempt to introduce myself in Spanish, but the laughter is good-natured and they ask if I want to hear them play. The kid and his friend perform La Lamparita, a Freddie Martinez hit written by Johnny Herrera. They're nervous. They're young and inexperienced, but man, they're giving it all they got. They're just like me. I walk out of the restaurant several tacos and Cokes later, and Mexico is feeling a lot less foreign. As I pedal down the dusty highway, I hum the new song in my head. I don't know it at the moment, but the world has opened up to me in a way that I will spend the rest of my life exploring. You can follow Willie Weir's travels online at willieweir.com, and his latest book is called Travels with Willie. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to KGNU in Boulder and the Radio Foundation in New York for their help today. There's more online behind the radio tab at ricksteves.com. And we'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city, and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat, and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.